0: Hi, it's me again. We're back in the wilderness and we're back in the right order now after the slight detour that we went on in order to see the priesthood vindicated and the grizzlers destroyed. But, of course, not totally destroyed because now we're in Numbers chapter 21 and would you believe it, they're at it again. This is, on one level, a small and straightforward story. I'm just looking at verses 4 to 9 of Numbers 21. But I think it is one which is important for two reasons. It points us towards Jesus, and it points us away from idolatry. And that's what we're going to uh, be exploring Well, it begins with the same old, same old, we're getting thoroughly bored by this now. The people are moaning once again because of the usual stuff, food, water, but with an added ingredient now, impatience. They're still headed, we're told, in the direction of the Red Sea. They're still on the U-turn that God commanded them to make. At their own request, because they balked at the idea of going into the promised land. But now, we've got something else going on, and I I get the sense from this impatience that they are like my kids when we used to drive to the south of France on holiday. We'd get about as far as Nottingham, and, and they'd say, are we nearly there yet? I'm sure... Uh, you've all had that experience. And you get that added to the usual stuff, which we've seen so many times, um, but with a, a very silly and interesting twist. We haven't got any food, we haven't got any water, and we don't like our food. And we've we've watched these people descend from... Uh, a very understandable desire to have water after three days in the wilderness right at the start of their journey without one. You can kind of understand that, but we've seen them come to an all-time low now when they haven't got any food, but they don't like it. They're, they're, they've they lost all sense of perspective, all sense in fact, there's just no logic to what they're saying and when grumbling becomes a habit when it becomes our way of life our native language it's easy for it to lose the original point to lose any sense of logic and, and just become grizzling for its own sake and I guess many of us know people um, who look a little bit like that It reminds me of a a thing I read recently about someone who was going to vote for a particular political party because before they were in power there were no food banks in their town but since they've been in power they've now got nine food banks. Um, Completely missing the point that it may well be that party which uh, provided the need for food banks but hey, Uh, You know, logic doesn't count for a lot, does it, with some people. So once again, God acts to punish them, which we've seen happen before. And there is no end to his creativity when it comes to punishment. And this time, it's poisonous snakes. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel the need for a little detour here, because we've watched God doing all kinds of things, uh, and this seems maybe to to be an all-time low, sending poisonous snakes to chase them. Isn't God a bit harsh in all this? Isn't there something within us which, which sees this as just a bit too below the belt, really, just cause they're grizzling about food, you know you can maybe understand him getting a bit angry about the golden calf and idolatry and stuff like that but but they're complaining and and his response is this, really, venomous snakes. What's going on here exactly? Well, I think we get an insight from this story... ...about the seriousness of sin... ...and I think that ties in with with perhaps... uh, ...what we might feel is an unlikely place... ...Matthew chapter 12... ...and Jesus' teaching about the unforgivable sin... Now that's uh, a passage which was the woe of many young Christians in youth groups that I've known over the years. Uh, And uh, young Christians completely neurotic about, have I done it? Um, Maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin without noticing and so I'm eternally damned and there's absolutely nothing that I can do about it don't know whether you uh, have met people or even yourself been through that that kind of anxiety so we need to understand that i think to understand the wilderness story and god's frequent punishing of the people so what is the unforgivable sin well It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, What does that actually mean? Well, let's have a look at what it was occasioned, Jesus' teaching. And the uh, Jewish leaders had seen Jesus working miracles and said that his power was coming from the devil to do that. They saw the work of God, but called it the work of the devil. And it was that that um, sent Jesus off into warning them about the possibility of the unforgivable sin. It's possible, I think, to become so hardened that you lose all sense of perspective and you begin to call evil good and good evil. And the reason that it's unforgivable is not because, oh, well, that, that's just one step too far and God will forgive lots of things, but he he won't give forgive that. I think it's unforgivable because people who have reached that stage of calling evil good and good evil, have become so hard-hearted, so set against the truth, that they won't repent of it. If I repent of something, it's because I uh, believe that I've done something wrong. But when we become so hard-hearted that we turn all morals upside down, then I think we are unlikely to be able to repent of that. And I think paradoxically, if we did manage to repent of the unforgivable sin, then we would be forgiven, because it wouldn't have been the unforgivable sin... Because if it was the unforgivable sin, we wouldn't be able to repent of it. You see what I mean? It's a bit convoluted. So what's that got to do with Numbers 21? Well, I think we've got a new development. In the past, the people have accused Moses of bringing them into the wilderness to kill them. And... uh, with all that he'd been through, I'm sure that Moses found that a little bit upsetting. Um, you know, when we when we try and do something good and people get it wrong and blame us for uh, doing it, it, it's quite hurtful, actually, that sort of thing. But here, verse 5, we're told that they're not just accusing Moses of that, they're accusing God of it. And when you start calling the miraculous works of God, which he has done for your salvation, actually his evil plot to kill you, then I think you'd agree that there's something badly wrong there. And those people are in grave danger of becoming so hard-hearted that there is no chance... Of repentance. So, what God is giving them here, I believe, just as I believe Jesus was giving to those Jews in Matthew 12, is a warning. I don't know why he chose snakes to do it. We uh, know that archaeologists have found in that region models, copper um, models of snakes and have suggested that they were used in some kind of healing ritual so it may be uh some sort of um links with other nations around maybe snakes were symbols of healing as they are today um in in the pharmacy and the medical world for example um But I do know that there are some quite important and eternal principles here. So the people, or at least some of them, do repent, or at least they say they do anyway. um, You may feel that looks suspiciously like another high-profile apology recently to which many people have said... Uh, You're not sorry you did it, you're just sorry you got caught. Uh, Something which I can remember my mother saying to me when I was young. Um, So anyway, they, uh, they certainly don't want to get caught by the snakes. So they ask Moses to pray for God to take away the snakes. And this is the significant bit, he says no. And this is really important, we would love it if God rewrote history over our sins, over our mistakes, over our regrets, over our punishments. We have already in our society and our church so often created a God in our own image who is tolerant, who loves us so much and so unconditionally that anything goes. Um, that that great 21st century value of tolerance. And uh, you'll have heard me say on more than one occasion, God is not tolerant, he is forgiving. And there is all the difference in the world between those two things. So God says no. I am not going to take away your punishment, but I am going to provide a way out for you. And so Moses is told to make the... uh, It's traditionally a bronze snake, although the Hebrew word could well refer to pure copper. Um, And you may feel that really doesn't matter. It's metal anyway. Um, So he's got to make this snake, lift it up on a pole... And all you have to do is to look at it and you'll be healed. You'll still have been bitten and it probably will have hurt you at the time. But it won't be lethal for you. That's the point. And that is really important because what does it do? It puts the responsibility back on us. And it allows the possibility that for whatever reason we won't look at the snake and so we'll die. But if we do, we'll be saved. And I think that story is an important uh, icon, if you like, for understanding the Christian gospel. It is, of course, taken up in uh, John chapter 3, and if you've not listened to my podcast, series of four podcasts on John 3.16, you'll find them earlier on this blog page, and uh, it'll give you much greater background to this passage. But, the the main point of John 3.16 is the word so, God so loved. And we often translate that like so, S and 17 O's after it. God loved the world so much. And in the Greek, that would be a different word. And it isn't. So that, A phrase doesn't say God loved the world so much, but rather God loved the world like so. It's a comparative phrase and it leads us to something else. And the something else is this story in Numbers 21, which comes uh, a few verses earlier. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In Numbers 21, God gives people an option, a chance, of receiving healing and forgiveness. What he doesn't do is say, oh, it doesn't matter, everything will be okay. And we can't understand John 3.16 properly. We were never intended to be able to understand John 3.16 properly without the background of this passage because jesus on the cross is a repeat performance of this incident not for a particular people uh, group of people on one occasion but for all people everywhere throughout time but if for whatever reason you have become so hardened that you don't even want to look to Jesus on the cross, then you won't be forgiven, you won't be healed. It's conditional and it's on us. And it seems to me that that is an absolute key idea in thinking about our Christian salvation through Christ. Moses was obedient to God and did all that was needed. It is then up to each person to look or to look away. And Jesus did all that was needed. And it is up to each person to look or to look away and there is no healing. There is no tolerance for those who choose to look away, that's a key principle about our salvation in Christ, and for for that alone this is a story worth reading and understanding, but there's even more to this uh, rather fascinating story. The first thing to note, and I none of the commentaries I've read on this passage pick this up at all, But it's worth noting that in making this snake, who was called, by the way, Nehushtan, he even uh, was given a name, Moses is told quite deliberately to break one of the Ten Commandments. Did you spot that? The making of any representation, um, the old version used to say graven image, Um, Any representation of an animal or a human is expressly forbidden in the Ten Commandments, which Moses received on Mount Sinai, and yet God tells him here that he's got to do it. What's all that about? I don't know about you, but I'm reminded by that of Peter in Acts chapter 10, receiving this vision of the sheep coming down, you know, with all the unclean animals in it. And and what's going on in that uh, story is that Peter is being told by the Holy Spirit that it's okay to disobey the Bible. Now... Both of these are exceptional circumstances and I certainly wouldn't want to build a doctrine on that. You you can just imagine that, can't you? I feel that the Holy Spirit told me it was okay to commit adultery um, and and therefore it is okay because the Spirit trumps the law. Uh, You can see that could be a dangerous idea in, in all sorts of ways. But what I do think is there is a picture of the uselessness of the the law in saving us. And that's a big thing in the New Testament, especially taken up in Romans, in Galatians and in Hebrews. It is God who saves. And while the law is not a bad idea, um, and I've said before it's there for two reasons... To show us how bad we are and to stop us from being worse, but it will never save us uh, to the uttermost, to uh, borrow that New Testament phrase. But as with Spirit Trumps law of thinking, there is a danger. And it is fascinating that there's a little postscript to this story. We meet Nehushtan again. In 2 Kings chapter 18, we're in the start of the reign of Hezekiah. Several hundred years later, King Hezekiah is a reforming king whose heart is set on God and he is determined to bring the nation out of their idolatry and back to the true worship of God. And so at the start of his reign, he sets about tearing down the pagan altars where false worship is offered. But also, verse 4, he smashes to bits Nehushtan, the snake made by Moses, because he found that people had been worshipping it and burning sacrifices to it. And that is absolutely fascinating because after this incident in Numbers 21, they'd obviously held on to this snake and it had actually become an idol and an object of false worship. The very thing which was the God-given gift to save people from death, has become an object of idolatrous worship itself. And that, perhaps, is why for 99.99% of the time, God forbade graven images in the first place. Now, you don't need me to apply that to you. In a church where Christians certainly appear to be worshipping the Eucharistic bread during a service called benediction in some churches, where footballers cross themselves for luck before taking penalties, where people touch wood for luck, as they would have done in the past with what was believed to be a relic from the actual cross on which Jesus died, etc, etc, etc. When what God has provided for our salvation becomes an object of superstition and false worship, we can see that we have seriously missed the point. Well, there we are, a very rich passage, warnings against both presumption and idolatry and an encouragement when we sin not to believe in a tolerant God but to look to Jesus on the cross and him alone through whom forgiveness and salvation come.